thank you for the invitation. Is that working? Mostly? Okay. <laughs> thank you for the invitation. That's nice of you, kind of you, and very brave. How many of you have ever seen TED Talks? A few. Have you seen the one by Ken Robinson? I think of it because I'm around teachers all the time now, and some in this room. And he talks about teachers in there and about the educational system. And he says, when you get invited to a dinner party, oh, wait a minute, yeah, you're teachers, you don't get invited to dinner parties. <laughs> and if you do, somebody alongside goes, they ask you, what do you do? Oh, I'm in education. And they turn away and they're muttering to themselves, what did I do? <laughs> so I am a teacher now, and I guess I have been for a long time, and I that Auntie Anne stint, I regard as one of the worst mistakes of my life. And my dear wife reminds me, would you have ever come to the view you have today if you hadn't done that? We were franchisees for 15 years and maintained a workforce of 50 people for that time in three different cities. And it sure was an education. Um, I learned a lot from it. Didn't make the money I thought I would, though I made money for a lot of other people. It was definitely an education. I heard your pastor's, one of your pastor's message, and he does a beautiful Bible exposition. And I'm a bit jealous I'm not going to be doing that today. And that is the best way to speak. But um, if you have a Bible, let's tr test this thing out. I'm guessing I go this way. Do I have to turn it on? Next slide. I have it up there too, don't I? Oh, you're still working on it. Meanwhile, okay. I want to give a brief word about textual criticism. Have you ever heard the term textual criticism? The Bible has been going through textual criticism for more than two centuries. And I, for one, am glad it is because it makes an audacious claim to be true. Anything that claims to be true should be, in my opinion, carefully scrutinized. Because a truth claim in today's world is a big thing. It's a big deal. Um, and now that I have the first one up there, I should say canceled, I think of this word and I came to this word even on this text because since the pandemic, my journal for school went something like this. On the first day, I had to call parents and tell them, explain to them in Spanish that school was going to be delayed for a couple hours. Then I had to call them back a few hours later to tell them that school was going to be canceled the next day. And then I saw the NCAA tournament, March Madness, canceled. And I have never seen this in my life, and I'm older than dirt. Um, I was rather stunned. And now they talk, if you have heard it, about cancel culture. Have you heard the term cancel culture? Yep. And so, 
when I read this account of the woman taken in adultery and brought to Jesus, it made me think of our cancel culture. But before I get to the text, does it work now or am I still? I'm afraid not, Tom. Oh, well. That's all right. I'll have you when we get to it. On textual, textual criticism, why is it important? What is its purpose? What is its value? And I'll tell you a story about one of my colleagues first, who I know is an atheist. She's young. She's a better linguist than I am. And since I shared a room with her for three years, she would frequently correct my Spanish, in which I learned as a good teacher to say, thank you. <laughs> I don't want to keep making mistakes and teaching kids to make those mistakes. So it's constantly, we're constantly learning, constantly growing. And for the record, I didn't learn Spanish, didn't start learning Spanish till I was 52 years old. And I didn't think I'd ever get it. I really didn't. My wife will testify. She saw me on my face just practically in tears saying, I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to get this. One of the things that really opened the door for me was a college professor, whom I never would have guessed, put a text up on a screen in Spanish and asked, what does it say? I had no clue. Until she gave me the first sentence. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law he... Uh, meditates day and night and all of a sudden I know all of this and the lights came on and I said softly out loud hello <laughs> and so I would listen to the text in Spanish I would read it in Spanish all these things until it began to become more and more familiar with me and I kept gaining vocabulary and so on it made a huge difference because I was so familiar with the text Dr. Krashen, Stephen Krashen, the great linguist, said that the problem with learning language is we learn it instead of acquiring it like we did when we were children. And that what it takes is tons of comprehensible input, and he defined that as a little above your ability to understand. And for that, yes, it's hard to believe that now I'm teaching Spanish. <laughs> and... Uh, when I sold off the last store, my wife said, you need to do what you were always meant to do, and you know it. Yes, but I perfectly understand why someone would avoid going into teaching. <laughs> I do understand it. It's hard work. It's tedious. And it's really like being uh, its an exaggerated case of motherhood. I have 100 students that expect me to know where all their stuff is <laughs> and what their grades are on every exam at any given moment. And please don't forget their name, even 10 years later. <laughs> and you've been doing it a long time. There are hundreds, aren't there? I mean, hundreds. I understand. That's the challenge of it. Back to the textual criticism about, and about my colleague who corrects me. She's a professed atheist. She's brilliant. And when I knew her, first started working with her, she was 23 years old. And I told her this story about Gandhi, how that uh, he was with a missionary, and they were on a road to south, through South Africa where there were some thugs on the road that they were terrified, the missionaries were terrified. 
And Gandhi said, you know what Jesus told us, if somebody smites you, turn the other cheek. We're just going to walk right through, determined, like they don't even know we're there. And they did. But before they did, the guy said, we thought he was speaking figuratively. He says, no, it works. I've seen it. And she said to me, well, belief is the strongest force in the world, Tom. I said, yes, but belief in what? Some people define faith as being believing something you think might not be true. Therefore, really strong faith is believing something you're pretty sure isn't true. That's not faith, that's stupidity. <laughs> I say that because the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is enormous. It is a well-documented truth. So to textual criticism, the reason it's good is if you're making a truth claim, let's make sure we can back it up. Let's make sure that this is legitimate, that it stands every test, every struggle. And yes, there will come that moment where your reason and logic are going to fail you. And there's where you're going to have to take that next step of faith. Um, for what it's worth on this text, which is coming from John chapter 8, and it should, uh, if you want to advance, you can't. Ah, in that case, didn't transfer. Oh, well. And some of this stuff that's kind of heavy now, you're going to have to uh, lean on listening. I'm a visual learner, and I like seeing it, but okay. Here are the arguments against this text of the woman taken in adultery, that it is not found in some of the oldest and best manuscripts, that it is not commented on by Greek fathers, Origen, Cyril, Chrysostom, and uh, Theophylact, that it differs in style from the rest of John's writing, that the moral tendency of the passage is somewhat doubtful. It seems to represent our Lord mitigating a serious sin. Now bear with me. Follow the train of thought. I don't want to lose you. Arguments for it, that it is found in many old manuscripts, if not the oldest and very best, that it, is found in, that it is also found in the Latin Vulgate, the Arabic, the Coptic, the Persian, and Ethiopian versions, that it is commented on by Augustine in his exposition of the gospel and others, and that there is no proof whatever of any immoral tendency. Our Lord pronounced no opinion on the sin. He simply declined the office of judge in this case. Now, all of that, just to point out that Okay, they've made their case of why they think it's not true, but there's also a very strong case of why it would be true. And this is how the science of textual criticism works. Since we have had documents for centuries, and when they discovered the new ones, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the first thing they did was make these comparisons. And isn't it remarkable the logical consistency among them? It's just incredible. John chapter 8. With that said, let's read the text, which I had up on the slide, but it's not there. So, 
And we'll start right with verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, now pause right there. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, I thank you for this book. I thank you for the word that has been preserved for our sake. It is such a book that we wouldn't write if we could and couldn't write even if we would. Lord, I thank you for your grace and mercy that are new every day for these people that are here and for their faithfulness to you, for many who have loved me from when I was younger and as I've been through many things. Thank you for this time to look at your word. Guide me, I pray. May I hear your voice as we go through your word. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Imagine this woman after festivities who is caught doing something wrong and now she's brought to stand in front of a group of people while they all tell them what she did. You want to trade places with her? I titled this first part, The Loneliest Moment. And Albert Camus wrote a book about a couple where the man worked in a city and the wife stayed home. And one day he decided to take this, his wife with him in the city. And while they were staying in the hotel, she got this urge to go out and see the city. And when he fell asleep, she went out to explore the city and she enjoyed and had fun. And when she came back, she climbed into bed. Her husband was still awake and she began to sob softly. And the husband wakes up and says, what's the matter? And she said, in true existentialist style, nothing, just nothing. The loneliest moment in life is when you reach for something that you think is going to bring you ultimate satisfaction, and it disappoints. That, to me, was my business experience. There was part of me that always wanted to be successful in business, and at our most successful point, I was possibly the most miserable I've been in my life. <laughs> Did not realize it. Now nobody wants my job, but... It's a good job. It's an honest job. And I have the satisfaction of watching students graduate and some of them accomplishing things I'm not sure they ever would have if I hadn't been there. That's exciting, isn't it, Linda? <laughs> that was her moment, the loneliest moment. Violation of the sacred in the pursuit of happiness is not truly a source of happiness. In fact, it kills happiness because it can run roughshod over many a victim. Pleasure that profanes is pleasure that destroys. Wild, Oscar Wilde said it himself. He said this from De Profundis. Sorrow is a wound that bleeds when any hand but that of love touches it, and even then must bleed again, though not in pain. Jesus' reaction to her is nothing like what the Pharisees had expected. And the very fact they bring her in, you know the law requires that 
both parties involved should be stoned, should be put to death. Why did they bring the woman and not the man? I mean, she wasn't alone in this. And we come again to Jesus' respect for women and womanhood. I was taken up by a book written by a British journalist years ago whose life ambition was to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And he said, most people that desire to write a book never get the time to do it, but I did. And he spent a few years exploring the resurrection of Christ, and the book he wrote was fascinating to me. It's not very big. It's only about this big, but it's written like a lawyer wrote it. And he was examining all of the difficulties of it, one of which was, if Jesus rose from the dead, why does he make his first appearance to a woman? She's not even a legal witness in a Jewish court of law or in a Roman court of law. And his ultimate conclusion was, this is the truth in all of its simplicity. The only reason he would have done that is because that's, that it would be written is because that's the way it happened. And my question is, why would he do it? If it were me, I think I'd have paid Caiaphas a visit <laughs> or Pilate. We don't know, but he knew. Maybe she cared more than anyone else. There's a very good chance of it. Even his speaking at, with the woman at the well, She's, one of her reactions, you remember, was, why are you a Jew man speaking with me, a woman and a Samaritan? He didn't care. He regarded them as equals in every way. There is no other religious leader that I know of like that. Not that I can think of. Um... The other thing, how quickly they judge her. But if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. There is all this argument about truth, that there is no absolute truth. And on the slide, I have a quote from Nietzsche, which you may be better off not seeing, where he says, the real truth about absolute truth is that the latter is fiction. And by his own statement, he makes that statement fiction. It's a self-defeating statement. But everybody believes in absolute truth when they are judging somebody else. It's only when we start judging ourselves that we start to fudge on it. It's funny, like C.S. Lewis said, pride looks hideously ugly when I see it in somebody else. But when it shows up in my own heart, it's not that bad, really. <laughs> I know that has been my experience. Margaret Manning Shaw, if you've ever read any of her work on Ravi Zacharias's website, you've read them, I see. Oh, she told a story that still haunts me to this day where she's holding that dinner party like Ken Robinson said, and she said, it happens more often than not, and I wished it wouldn't happen. Somebody starts talking about others that aren't at the party. And they start saying, she's so judgmental. You see the irony of that statement. She's 
Oh, they're cute. They are adorable. <laughs> the irony of that statement, they're so judgmental. You're judging them. That is called, I believe, a psychological projection. I've seen it over and over. As soon as we judge someone, it's something that is bothering us. It's very often something we're guilty of. For example, here's another one. On the slide, I had a picture of a man up here, and I wanted to see if anybody recognized him. He was my hero once. He was an engineer for Ford Motors, and he boasted having part in the design of the Ford Mustang. Also, he had a part in this, and he didn't boast about it, the Ford Pinto. But he had a point in his life where he said, I want to own a business. I was John DeLorean. And he got this big business. In fact, first time I came upon this, I was on my way to Utica to visit my store, and I heard Robbie Zacharias tell this story on the radio. And from that point on, I bought all of his books. I read everything I could read. I was just completely taken up. He was, on the, he was on trial, and they had a witness on the stand that was lying, testifying against him. And he says, he's lying. Why is he lying? I know. It's for the money. And that's when it hit him. He would have done anything to save his company. And he turned to selling drugs to bail out his company, which is why he was on trial. And you might appreciate how attached you become to a company, it's, mine was divinely taken away from me in some respects, and I look back at it, and I really resented it at the time, the way it went, but now I look back at it, and I see the hand of God on everything. John DeLorean was one of those people that recognized he was guilty of that. Malcolm Muggeridge was another. He set out that while he was quite wealthy, quite famous, and he was in India, he said he's going to have an affair for the fun of it. And he sees this woman out bathing in the river in India. And he goes out and swims after her. And the moment she turns to him, he recognizes she has no teeth and she's a leper. And he goes, oh, what a wretched person. It took him a few weeks to realize he was the wretched person. And it took him a while to come to grips with it. The question um, on the nature of truth is the second part of this. And Jesus' conversation with Pilate, if you recall it, when he asks Jesus, are you a king? You remember Jesus' answer. It's kind of surprising. Are you asking this of your own? Or did somebody else put you up to it? It's really interesting to me because we're not really friends of the truth. We do this little duplicitous dance with the truth in our own hearts many, many times. And at the start of this, I was going to say, I appreciate the skeptic. The Apostle Thomas was a skeptic. But I don't appreciate the cynic. The difference being the skeptic asks a question and really wants to know the answer. The cynic asks a question like Pilate did and then walks away. He didn't want to know the answer. 
His wife had already told him, and he knew. From what I understand in history, he and his wife had a pretty good relationship. But uh, she didn't have the same struggle with truth that he did. He was opening up Pilate's heart to himself to reveal his unwillingness to hear the truth. Here is another reason to judge others less harshly. If we examine ourselves, we are encouraged to be silent. It's something, by the way, I am still learning to do. The question reveals to Pilate his unwillingness to deal with the implications of Jesus' answer. In Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, you may recall Pilate's response to his wife's view of truth, and then he comes back, I know what my truth is. My truth is that if this happens one more time, Caesar's going to have me on that cross. For that, I have an idea that he relived that confrontation with the Nazarene for the rest of his life. There's a cute little poem from a play. I made him swear he'd always tell me nothing but the truth. I promised him I never would resent it. No matter how unbearable, how harsh, how cruel, how come he thought I meant it? <laughs> it is the way we are, isn't it? These words remind us how duplicitously we can act when it comes to truth. We can offer platitudes to imply we want the truth no matter what, me, what it may mean, but we seldom act accordingly. And then this statement, and I had it up on the screen, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That's quite a word. Where did this come from? Anybody know where those words came from? What's that? Hamilton. Hamilton. <laughs> I'm sure it did. They also came from the Declaration of Independence, and they were repeated in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Where in the world did we get this from? All men are created equal. I stand next to Mike. I do not feel equal. Though, i got to tell you, you've never made me feel small. And, and that's something. But where do we get this from? All men are created equal. What did they mean? Ravi made it clear you didn't get it from Buddhism or Hinduism. It was the caste system that launched Buddhism because the caste system is despicable and, boy, I don't even have the quotes that I had. They were up here. They weren't on my notes here because I didn't recopy them when I did this. That in Eastern culture, they use an honor-shame system. And the biggest difference between that and the Western culture, which uses a guilt-innocence culture, or, in, yeah, framework, is that if you've done, so, in the East, if you've done something wrong like this, it's because you are bad, not that you've done a bad thing. And so you are to be canceled. In the Western culture, and I think of this often because my new son-in-law is, is, though he's from England, he's Indian. And he grew up in a Hindu culture. Hey, great guy. Love this guy. They don't see things the way they, we do, and his reaction to us, he tells my daughter, you have the best parents in the world. 
he's still blind. But <laughs> um, I see why he says that. They're coming from an honor-shame culture. And it, the only way out of it is you die, and if you did well with what you were given, you'll be reborn at a higher level. You can't get out of it. That is what you are. And Gautama Buddha didn't like that, so he founded a system without the caste system. The problem is, to me, he still maintained reincarnation. And because he maintained reincarnation, they still have the same value system underlying it. He's a very wise man. I've learned a lot from him. I've read the Dalai Lama's books and so on. But his noble truths, the last one, falls short of reconciling the problem of suffering. In fact, I don't know if you knew Gandhi. When he read the Old Testament, he wasn't really taken up with it. When he got to the New Testament, he wasn't crazy about Matthew 1. Most people aren't. It's all genealogy. When he got to the Beatitudes, he was just absolutely smitten. He said, this isn't the way life is, but this is the way life was meant to be. And for that, he carried a New Testament on him for the rest of his life. He also, in his autobiography, and one of the reasons I have 30 years of quotes on truth, I read his autobiography called My Experiments with Truth. He's, uh, <laughs> there was no question he was heavily influenced by Christianity. He also was a huge influencer in the life of Martin Luther King, Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. met with him. He didn't have much use for Western Christianity. He said, I like their Christ. I don't care much for their Christians. These words remind us, we hold this truth to be self-evident. You didn't get it from Hinduism. You didn't get it from Buddhism. You won't get it from Islam either. One of the reasons I go back to the idea of textual criticism, if you do that, you will disappear from the face of the earth with the Koran. I read the Koran, and what I was looking for were things to determine empirical evidence. If you look at, and I don't know, it's not on the screen, Luke chapter 3, for example, and I should just turn there quickly because I'll show you. I remember pointing this to some of Grace's classmates in grad school when she was in grad school, and they were just stunned because young people nowadays have not read the Bible. I wrote a paper, an apologetic paper on Marx's statement that uh, religion is the opiate of the people, and I quoted in there from John, and I had a colleague, another student, proofread it, and they had no idea what El Evangelio de San Juan was. So I had to explain, but the professor stunned me when he got to the end of it. He challenged some of my statements, but when he got to the end of it, he goes, more, more, give me more. And I was trying to do an apologetic thing, but you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 1, and I came to Christ under Luke's gospel. I love his work. He was a physician, but he writes like a historian. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 
and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John. If you want to disprove that, all you have to do is establish any one of those eight or ten people that were just mentioned as living in a different date. When I read the Quran, there was no statement like that, not one. Tests for truth, logical consistency, empirical, that's verifiable evidence, and the third one, existential relevance. Sometimes you come to truths that don't have any meaning to me. <laughs> and it's true, but so what? <laughs> Those are the things we're looking for. On this, the Bible stands above the rest. There is nothing like it. 40, 40 different authors over thousands of years. And the logical consistency is just stunning. I also learned from the Quran, it was really curious to me, that they also verify the virgin birth of Christ. Um, they also attributed him to, miracles to him that they did not attribute to Muhammad. Ravi Zacharias used to get himself in trouble and confront Muslims on this, and they would just kind of shake it off. And I won't go into that story, but um, the skeptic like Thomas has a real interest in finding out the truth. The cynic, while raising the question, is not really interested. Here's that statement from Nietzsche. I'll read you part of it. This is painful, but I just want you to get it. Equality is a lie concocted by inferior people who arrange themselves in herds to overpower those who are naturally superior to them. The morality of equal rights is a herd morality, and therefore it opposes the cultivation of superior individuals. It leads to the corruption of the human species. The real truth about objective truth is that the latter is fiction. There's an awful lot in here. It's a painful statement to listen to. But you know what teachers I love and admire the most? And I never thought it would be this way. Special education teachers. They see everything in an entirely different light than I. Than me. Than I do. And one of that same colleague that I talked to, she was bragging to me about how easily she could remember vocabulary and so forth. And I reminded her that I said, yes, but those aren't necessarily the greatest teachers. She says, why would you say that? For the same reason great athletes seldom make great coaches. If the skills that you're trying to coach out of these people came too easily to you, you can't appreciate the difficulty of it. And the vision of a special ed teacher is every student can learn, what am I missing here? That's really the way they're trying to look at it. And in that Ken Robinson TED talk, he opens with a student that was brought in while he was on the committee, and that little girl, that all the while he talked with their mother, the little girl danced. 
And he said that afterwards, he says, your child is an active learner. And then he mentioned her name and asked if anybody knew, and I don't remember her name, I wish I did, because she is one of the most famous dance choreographers today that is in the, in the world. And she's a multimillionaire for it. And he said, and this is true, our educational system is really good at creating one thing, university professors. <laughs> Not special education teachers, I can tell you. I have been around them, and man, not only are many of them brilliant, they are very caring and seeking ways to reach these children. Interesting to me that, yes, I do believe that all men are created equal. That is, I believe they are equally valuable. Not that they have equal gifts and abilities, that's crazy. If so, I would, be, would have been an NBA player. Would have loved that, but don't have those talents, gifts, even if I worked forever at it. It's not going to happen. I used to tell uh, kids that I had one of them once say something about being good looking, and I, do I look like I won the DNA lottery here? But just for the record, the ones that did aren't any happier than I am. I believe that. Oh, I had one student. Oh, I'll never forget. And I shouldn't tell this story, but Linda, you may know this feeling. He was a great kid, not a great student, but a great kid. And every morning he would say the Pledge of Allegiance so loud that the first time I smiled and I looked and I said, I think there's somebody on the third floor that didn't hear that. You want to do it again? <laughs> and I went to his funeral last November for suicide. He once asked me, he says, I'm too stupid to get girls. I said, have you not seen the Big Bang Theory? Smart guys can't get girls either. <laughs> and I wanted to tell him, you need God's help. That, that's what worked for me. <laughs> and I wished I had. I have told him such things in Spanish. It's funny to me how in the universities of the United States, they regard Jesus as a great teacher, but don't you dare mention his name. Interesting. Yeah, Nietzsche closes that statement with much more on it. Every candidate for truth must first be expressed in language, and language is notoriously unable to get us to reality. But then he says, I am still too pious that I want to worship at the altar where God's name is truth. Probably his most famous writing was the parable of the madman. And Robbie was the one I learned all this from. He ended up becoming the madman of his parable. But he had a huge influence on the world. Robbie counts him the most influential writer of the 20th century. And he wrote in the 19th century. And the reason he does is because that statement right there, equality is a lie concocted by inferior people, was captured by Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin. And Hitler passed these writings off to them with notes in the margin saying, doesn't this make you feel powerful? Equality is real. We are equally valued before God, all of us.
no exceptions. I have another son-in-law who's Dominican, and I have learned an awful lot from him because he's black, and he's a big, tall, strong man. And when I was first in a car with him and a cop goes by, he gets all clammy and nervous. I said, why? You don't understand. I said, but you've got a reputation. You're a good guy. Doesn't matter. I look like everybody else they're looking for. He has been stopped many times. He and his brother put in jail without a cause. To me, it's really frustrating. But if I hadn't been so close to him, I'm not sure I would have ever learned this. It was stunning to me. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Are we equal? I can tell you this, and I close with this. I cannot possibly judge what's going on in anyone else's heart. There is enough duplicity in my own to keep me fully occupied with staying on the path of truth. We are all of us a walking contradiction, part truth and part fiction. Pilate, while boasting of his power to free Jesus from the moment, was himself afraid and ignorant of truth. He must have relived that confrontation with, with the Galilean for the rest of his life. The only one who is absolutely true is the person of Jesus Christ. To reject him is to choose to live our lives by a lie. To receive him is life and peace and joy everlasting. With that, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for these people, this church, this opportunity, for what the time spent in preparation has meant to me and the soul searching that's gone into it. I thank you for my dear wife and family for the lessons that you have taught for your continued faithfulness that are new every day. Thank you for Jesus our Lord, for the sacrifice that he made to save and redeem us from ourselves. We ask that you would bless this day May our thoughts be with you throughout this day. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.